Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Everyone's got a karaoke story. I've got a few karaoke stories. Here's my favourite karaoke story. It was, gosh, about 15 years ago, and we were filming a TV series about the making of the modern world, and it was grand, and it was epic, and it was very BBC One. And we were in Tokyo, filming in Tokyo, about Tokyo infrastructure, and we needed an out. We needed a way out of the film. We needed a little button to end it, just to sum everything up. And it was Halloween when we were filming, and we were in the middle of Tokyo, and everyone was dressed in fancy dress costumes. There were robots and princesses and unicorns, all kinds of things. And we thought to ourselves, well, actually, what is it about cities that make cities cities? And we looked around and we thought, well, ultimately, it comes down to people, all these people coming together to do amazing things. And we thought, well, actually, because we're in Tokyo, what better way to end this little sequence than with a karaoke bar in Tokyo? And I love doing karaoke. So we thought, okay, well, it's BBC One, you know, early evening, family show. What better karaoke sequence than an Elvis dream sequence? So we rented an Elvis, white Elvis jumpsuit. And we shot it slow motion, of course, a kind of dream sequence. And I'm walking across the famous Shibuya crossing, you know, the famous crossing in Tokyo where all the people walk across the road. And I'm wearing my white Elvis jumpsuit and everybody, as I'm walking through, kind of is turning to look at me and thinking, what's going on? And then I enter the club and people are screaming and it's all slow motion. You can see the kind of sweat and the lights and everyone dressed in crazy costumes. And I take to the stage and I tap the microphone and we redid the scene with Nicolas Cage and Laura Dern from Wild at Heart singing Love Me. Not Love Me Tender, but Love Me. To read me like a fool. Anyway, we thought this was the best ending of a film ever. We were like, this is going to be marvellous. No one's ever seen anything like this on BBC One. <laughs> and nobody ever will see anything like that on BBC One. Because uh, the uh, the powers that be at the BBC, our producer, quite sensibly thought we'd gone a bit over the top. And it was utterly ridiculous. And so the world was spared. My, my moment of fame, my Elvis dream sequence never made it. Hey ho. However, I still have a little clip of it secretly on my laptop. So if you're very lucky, I might share it on social media. Welcome to Patented. It's my podcast about the history of inventions from history hit. Today we're talking about all things Japanese. The Japanese are great inventors. So much of second half of the 20th century 
gadgets and gizmos seem to come from Japan. And one of the great inventions from Japan was the karaoke machine. And my guest today is Matt Alt, who is the author of a terrific book called Pure Invention, How Japan's Pop Culture Conquered the World. And conquered the world it did. It's a fantastic book. Tells the story of some of Japan's most iconic creations, inventions that shaped life for a lot of us, particularly if you're my age, 30. In fact, I enjoyed talking to Matt so much about karaoke machines that we are recording more episodes together. So look out for those coming soon. Matt, what a pleasure. Thank you very much. You're in your basement sitting on your floor. I am. I'm in my basement in Tokyo and it is a pleasure to be here. I love Tokyo. I'm such a massive Tokyo fan. I, oh, I'm you such a massive. Come. Well, I, I, I will. I was. I've been there several times, mainly for work, filming, as discussed in the introduction to this. But I've just, I, it, and actually, just reading your book, which is lovely, by the way. It's called Pure Invention: How Japan's Pop Culture Conquered the World, and it's a beautifully written book. I mean, apart from the subject matter, it's just, it's lovely. It's beautifully well, written. Thank you. You're a very talented writer. But I'm reading it and I just I just get this massive nostalgia because I'm of an age, I mean, I grew up in the 1980s. And for me, when I think about Japanese, when I think about what you're talking about, the rise of Japanese culture, it is watching E.T. in 1981 and seeing the Kuohara X special edition BMX. Right. Suddenly in this all-American movie, for the first yes. time, you've got this, this Japanese bike which suddenly yes. every kid in the world wants to say, that's the bike I've got to have, and it's a Japanese bike. And then I'm thinking about, well, you know, video games, obviously, you talk about. Sure. Big rise of video games. The Walkman. The Walkman, of course, and we're going to do a whole episode about the Walkman. And like I had Walkman number one. Oh, and wow. Also, and also motorcycles, too. The 1970s and 1980s, because motorcycle culture certainly in britain it was triumph and it was bsa and in right. america it was harley and indian and it was yes. all about those things and then suddenly the 1970s honda and kawasaki brought these beautiful inline four motorcycles out and sorry one more little thing and then i'll then i'll shut up no i love this i love this Top Gun came out. Now, Top Gun, see, this is this is when Japanese motorcycle culture really took off. So it to- right. Because Tom Cruise rode the Kawasaki GPZ-900R sports bike. And it was the first time in an all-American movie where you'd think you'd have an American motorcycle. They had the kind of prototype American sports bike. And then from there, the whole thing kind of blew up. So suddenly in America and Britain, yeah, 1980s. Love it. Oh yes. Well, I mean, Japan. Japan emerged as this manufacturing superpower in the '60s and '70s, yes. right? Yeah. And that that continued well into the '80s. You know, Honda Civics were taking over the roadways. Sony televisions are taking over uh, households yeah, everywhere. Yeah. Exactly right. And then, but the the '80s are also an inflection point because that's when Japanese things started to give way to Japanese fantasies in the form of software. And you make this point in the book, people were always a bit sniffy about Made in Japan. It was a, it was a label that was not de rigueur. It was... It was a, see, oh, it was, it was derogatory, practically. Yeah, but then suddenly, you know, you had this sort of flourishing of exactly Japanese... Fan- what is that Japanese fantasy? What's, what's going on there? Like, why, why did this... I mean, briefly, and then we'll get on, because I know this, sure. episode, this episode is about karaoke, but I just want to establish 
that, that your thesis, if you like. Well, you know, the, the world, the Western world has long had a fascination with things Japanese. In fact, mm. that's where the title of my book, Pure Invention, comes from. Oscar Wilde is poking fun at the craze for Japanism that was sweeping Europe and England and America in the, uh, in the late 19th century. Of course, that all came crashing to a halt with World War II. You know, Japan was public enemy number one. Yeah, that sucked you know, World War II. Yeah, it did. Uh, it very much so. <laughs> you know, to my grandparents, you know, in my grandparents' generation, Japan was an enemy. To my parents, you know, the baby boomers, they saw Japan as this defeated husk of a nation, a kind of a joke. But that was never the case for me and my Gen X friends. We never saw Japan as an enemy or a rival. It was the source of all of the stuff we so desperately wanted, like Nintendos and Game Boys and Hello Kitty and Transformers and Power Rangers and all of that stuff. Not just economically, but those that sort of burst of creativity. Like, was there a kind of a source of that? Well, one of my, you know, theses and actually the kind of the core thesis of the book is that Japan got to the future a little bit ahead of the West in a lot of ways. And we really started to see that happening in the in the 80s. What I mean by got to the future a little ahead, I, I don't I don't mean in any science fictional way. I mean, Japan emerged from the ashes of World War II to become the world's second largest economy by the late 60s. Right. But then already by the 70s and early 80s, you're starting to see demographic decline. Japan is becoming an aging society. And then with the 1990s, a, a huge economic crash happens and ushers in this very dark period for young people in particular who've kind of lost faith in their future. They don't really, they have a lot of ambivalence about what the future is going to hold as compared to their parents' generations. And this kind of boom and bust uh, really mirrors what would happen in the West just a couple of decades later with the Lehman shock and the, the huge economic, the real estate crash. And now I think if you ask young people in America or, or England what they think about the future, they're going to hold very similar sorts of opinions about it as Japanese youth did in the 1990s. Let's talk about, let's talk about karaoke. I mean, when, when you think about, if you ask someone on the street, name something Japanese cultural, they'll probably, there's a good chance they'll say karaoke. Yes. <laughs> and and it's funny, in the introduction to this, I was talking about, you know, I made a TV series in Japan, partly in Japan, and, you know, karaoke, well, <laughs> you'll listen to the introduction, we almost got fired, but anyway. <laughs> First of all, let's talk about the invention of it and, and, and the origins of it. And then I, then I want to understand why it's, sure. what is so Japanese about it? Like, why is singing to backing tracks, what is, why is that Japanese, in inverted commas, like, culturally why is it so huge in in the writing of my book i actually tracked down i wanted to track down and succeeded at tracking down the gentleman who invented the first karaoke machine so take us through that little story if you if you would well one of the fascinating things that i learned in the research for this book is that karaoke was invented five separate times during the years between 1967 and 1972 in Japan by people working independently who had no knowledge of the other person's progress. So it's obvious that something was very much in the air in Japan in this time period that compelled so many people to start putting together what now seems so obvious, a microphone and an amplifier and a speaker and a tape deck. Okay, but but why? Like, what was in the air? What was the zeitgeist that, that people suddenly wanted to show off or like sing this is precisely what i was trying like if it happens five times there has to yeah, be something going, going on, on there right <laughs> so i when i the more i started unraveling this the more i realized just how integral song was to japanese life in in the post-war era there um 
people, you know, there are songs at neighborhood festivals. There were kind of prototypes of celebrity karaoke type shows that were on the radio. Actually, one of the very first huge radio hits after World War II was a public karaoke competition. They didn't call it that, but they invited people to come in and and test their singing skills on the radio right. and, and picked who the best one would be. So, you know, it's not like Japan was any stranger to sing-alongs. And there was also a huge uh, market at the time for uh, what were called nagashi. And these were basically wandering minstrels who would go around the nightlife district with a guitar. And if you wanted to sing a song, you would pay them uh, a couple yen and they would uh, strum the melody while you would sing along to it. So there was a kind of history and, and an actual culture of sing-alongs that was happening in Japan. But was that elsewhere in the world? Because I think I, I'm just remembering that chapter in your book. You talk about so I think in America they had sort of sing-alongs where you'd have the lyrics up on the screen with the, with the bouncing yeah. ball, so you kind of know where to... Well, there was a show called Sing Along with Mitch, which is considered by many to be one of the kind of prototypes of, of karaoke as a concept, if not a device. And it was exactly what you said. Uh, Mitch would get up on stage and sing, <laughs> yeah. and there would be lyrics with a little, uh, you know, that would that with a little bouncing ball over them. And even before that, in like the 1920s and 1930s, the Fleischer brothers, who are known for making so many different uh, cartoons, there's great Superman cartoons, all sorts of cartoons from that time period. They also had a sing-along kind of cartoon with a bouncing ball that would bounce along the lyrics. So the idea of singing along to lyrics in real time was not invented by the Japanese, uh, nor was the microphone, nor was the you know speaker, nor was the tape deck. Yet it was Japan that had the kind of genius idea to combine them all together. It reminds me of kind of Edison and the light bulb. Like he didn't invent the light bulb, but he invented lots of bits. And then yes. sort of packaged together, you get a light bulb. So we've kind of got a similar, a similar well, situation here. So people, well, people like singing. Yes. I like that idea of wandering minstrels. Actually, where I live in, in I live in central London. I don't know if it still goes on anymore. Any, I think maybe in the 90s we used to do right. this. At the garage, gosh, old listeners might remember this. There used to be a thing called punk rock karaoke, where there was there was a punk rock band, like it just like a three-piece <laughs> punk band. And you just, just like to rock up and there was right. like a big list of songs. And then you'd get up on stage and sing <laughs> punk rock songs. And it was great. One of the great things about karaoke, it's a palette. It's like a palette for whatever kind of musical expression you want to have. But in its in its early days in Japan, and this is what I realized when I was researching the book, the reason that karaoke emerged in Japan and nowhere else is really simple. And that is, it could be summed up in one word, the salary man. So explain to our wonderful listeners what a salary man is. A salary man is what we would call in the West a business person. It is a salaried white collar office employee. And this was a very sort of aspirational job to have in the pre-war and immediate post-war. And now, of course, it's how most people in Japan make their living as, you know, working in an office somewhere and really in, in most of the advanced world. But in the 1960s, it was still a sort of elite kind of position. And as a salary man, your job, especially if you were kind of in the sales or the marketing divisions of your company, you would do a lot of entertaining. And in this day and age, there are in Japan, there are bullet trains or you have planes or you have personal cars and it's very easy to get around. But back in the 1960s, it wasn't so easy. So when you had a business trip, it was inevitably overnight. And when you did an overnight business trip, it was considered that the people who were you were visiting, the, the, the company that you were visiting would take care of you until you had to go home the next day. So that meant a lot of going out on the town. 
and going out in the town meant a lot of drinking. And after the conversation flagged, it might mean going to a hostess club. And after that got kind of tired, you might want to get start singing. And that's where the karaoke, that's where the nagashi came in. So originally you have the nagashi who are, I don't want to say praying, but they're marketing themselves to these people. They see bored salarymen groups. Hey, fancy a song? What do you like? You know, play me Misty, you know, and then everybody starts singing along, right? That is the the scene in which the need for the karaoke machine emerged. And what the what what ended up happening was the people who created their prototype karaoke machines were essentially automating this process. That it's interesting actually reading your book when you we'll talk about this in a moment where you talk about the different products that came along the eight juke and the Sparco box and these these sort of proto things they all the thing that I really noticed as well as just it's not just plugging a mic into the back of an amp and and having a speaker it also comes with a coin slot so it's very much designed as yes. you say to be a marketed product. And we're talking about the karaoke machine now. You, you talk about these different inventions all happening in, in different times. There's a couple that you talk about. I, I just mentioned them, the 8 Duke and the, and the Sparker Box. Just tell us a, a little bit about what they were and, and, and this, this movement into this automated machine that would allow people to, to sing. So to track down the gentlemen who were involved in making the karaoke machine in the 60s, who are all retired now, I turn for help to the... All Karaoke Industrialist Association, which is a associate, such a great. I expected when I went in there, like robber barons of old twirling their mustaches, you know, the Industrialist Association. The Japanese, they love a museum and stuff, and they love an organization. <laughs> I went to the Kawasaki Museum in Kobe the other day. And, oh and yes, yes. Guys, sorry, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop talking. No, no. Sony that. had a great one too yeah, for a while. I love. Anyway, sorry. Carry on. So you tracked down the karaoke. So and they gave me the contact information for one Mr. Shigeichi Negishi who was at the time 92 years old uh, and was living in Tokyo. And uh, I, you know, they introduced me to him and I went over to his house and he actually brought out for me the very first karaoke machine and told me that the room in which we were sitting, the living room of his home was the very, the place where the very first karaoke party was convened on this planet. Okay. I, Pause there. It was amazing. Pause there. Just for our listeners, just describe this machine yes. so we've got a nice visual image of what we're looking okay. at. So Mr. Negishi's Sparko box was a cube, I would say, about, I good don't name, know, 40 Sparko ce- box. That's it is. And name. well, there's this a reason is- for that, which we'll get to. Yeah. It's about 40 centimeters on the side, and it housed a eight-track tape deck in the top. I'm sure you remember oh, these. I'm familiar from, with the eight-track. Yes, from our misbegotten youths. But uh, it's about 40 centimeter on a side cube. It's covered with like kind of the same formica that's used to cover countertops because it was designed to take, you know, some kind of abuse. Of course, it has an amplifier. It has a coin slot. But the reason that it's called the Sparko box is because the front of it was uh, covered with a piece of translucent plastic. And behind that were a bunch of light bulbs that strobed along with the music. He had put this piece of, of, of kind of corrugated plastic on it so the light looked like stars. It's very disco. It's a very disco effect. Wonderfully disco. And he came up with the name the Sparko Box. Because at this point, karaoke wasn't even a, a widely known word in the Japanese language. That came along later. We'll come on to the origins of the word karaoke. I mean, people will yes. know what it means, but there's actually more interesting origins. Oh, so, yeah, definitely. Are we are we calling this ground zero of the karaoke machine? Can, or can we? Do we have license this to do that? This is absolutely ground zero of the karaoke machine. And Give us a date yeah. when the first karaoke party happened. This what is, was sung? 
Late in 1967 is uh, the year when uh, this was all happening. Mr. Negishi ran a, a business that, in, that, that assembled car radios. And that's where he got the idea of putting all these parts together in a different configuration because he loved doing sing-alongs himself. But the, this is 1967. And Mr. Negishi brings this box that he had one of his engineers wire together for him home and sits with his family and slots in an eight track tape with a, of an instrumental song and sings it together with his family. And this is the problem. I actually have to look up what the song tape is. It's, 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 please make it be my way by Frank. Sinatra. Unfortunately, <laughs> the first karaoke song was not my way. It was a Japanese Enka song, which is a, a kind of a Japanese right. ballad. The things about you'll notice about when people sing karaoke is generally they're terrible but was there something to soften the the horrificness of people's you've you've hit the nail on the head this was the problem with the sparko box and the reason that you probably have never heard of it before as as most japanese have never heard of it before mr negishi happened to be a pretty talented amateur singer himself so when he made this machine, he assumed that everybody would be using standard instrumental recordings of the same sort that were the song in the backing track was exactly the same that a professional would sing to. That was fine for him. But for the vast majority of us, as you say, we're terrible singers. <laughs> we can't keep up with the rhythms and tempos and pitches of professionals. So although he was successful in placing this machine in quite a few bars uh, in Japan, it failed to take off in the way that another machine did that proved even more transformative for karaoke. And that one is known as the Eight Juke. And it came along in 1971. Okay, so talk, talk us through the Eight Juke. What changes had happened? The Eight Juke was the invention of a man named Daisuke Inoue. And he was not an engineer. He was not an inventor. He was a band leader who worked in the red light district of Kobe, a place known as Sanomia, which is a incredibly vibrant then and now I was for just nightlife. there. Were not you? In the red, not in the red light district, but I was in Kobe. <laughs> well, if you were singing in Kobe in the in that area, oh, too bad. You would have been singing where karaoke really took off. So Inoue was a really interesting fellow. He's, he's leading local bands that play at different bars and establishments in the area. But he's also really well known as a sing-along specialist. He is really good at playing music in tune with people who don't have any tune themselves so to speak. Okay. And because of his many years of doing this, he became quite good and, and quite in demand to the point where he was having to turn down gigs, good, well-paying gigs to, to lead sing-alongs. That's where he came up with the idea of coming up with the eight juke. Was he aware of the Sparko box previously? He was, was not. He? And so, so this is completely separate. Mr. Inoue had no idea that anybody else had come up with this idea because nobody else, none of the other inventors, not Mr. Negishi, none of them had been successful and none of them thought to patent their idea. They thought it was too obvious to patent. Mm. So Mr. Inoue comes up with this new karaoke machine and it looks a lot like the Sparko box minus the lights on the front about 40 centimeters on the side it's got an eight track on the top you know the microphone works but there is two crucial differences number one is that Inoue knows how bad of singers most of us are but he happens to be a band leader so at nights and weekends when he's not performing you know professionally he pulls together a band and records dozens and even hundreds of songs that are 
rearranged to be easier for average people to sing. So different keys and things. Different keys, different tempos, but subtle, subtle. If you're an average bloke who's picking up the microphone, you probably think you're a superstar singing. I can, I can sing along to this. I know I'm a superstar when I, (laughs) of course. (laughs) And he also had the insight to put a spring inside the amplifier. So you had a kind of rudimentary reverb function. So the combination of reverb and the these re-recorded songs uh, proved really game changing. So mm. he is actually credited, Mr. Inoue and not Mr. Negishi is credited as the creator of karaoke because he came up with the business model. He came up with the software and the hardware side of it. That's interesting. So he recorded the song. So original, I mean, actually, before that, in terms of getting just instrumental versions of songs, did anyone worry about things like performers' rights and the legal aspects of it? Like, how did that at the time? If, it, if no one's patented it, like, is, no, is no, it's it, very much a legal gray zone. And so, especially in Inoue's case, he's re recording this stuff from scratch. He, I, I don't yeah. think that the recording rights even entered in the picture until karaoke took off and people realized what a business this was. It's a good lesson in life, dear listeners, that forgiveness is easier to get than permission. As we Americans say, disrupt first, you know, ask forgiveness later. I'm James Patton Rogers, a war historian, advisor to the UN and NATO, and host of the Warfare Podcast from History Hit. Join me twice a week, every week, as we look at the conflicts that have defined our past and the ones shaping our future. We talk to award-winning journalists. ISIS, this peculiar strain that we all came to know very well in the mid-2010s, really got its start because of the US invasion of Iraq. We hear from the people who were actually there. The Sudanese have been incredible. They have managed to get supplies to people, to individuals who are suffering. And we learn from the remarkable historians shining a light on forgotten histories. For the most part, the millions of people who were taken to those camps were immediately murdered. Auschwitz combined the functions of death camp and concentration camp and slave labor. Join us on the Warfare Podcast from History Hit twice a week, every week, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Okay, you mentioned the word business model. So how do we go from the construction of this machine to it actually being a business, to it becoming a thing? Like, what, what, how did he introduce people to it? Well, first of all, Mr. Inoue had to overcome a big hurdle, which was his own colleagues. The other band leaders of the Sanomia area were furious when they saw this machine. They saw it as taking money out of their pockets. And there, I actually opened the chapter, the karaoke chapter with this scene. They hold an emergency meeting of the Performing Artist Association. 
and are trying to figure out what to do. And they're cursing Inoue and they're cursing this machine. But he is a veteran of this area. He's a veteran of the scene. He's dealt with everyone from damsels in distress to gangsters. And he faces down the uh, the Performing Artists Association and says, what? You know, you're going to give up or you're going to roll over and die just for this machine? You guys are people. You can perform. You can compete. And that saved his bacon for that moment. But it turned out that the Performing Artist Society was actually correct. People <laughs> much more preferred the machine than they did interacting with people for sing-alongs. This, this is what happens. When any kind of new technology comes along, the first thing that happens is people go, shit, how am I, it's going to yes. take my jobs. I'm not going to be able to work anymore. And we're seeing this, of course, with AI. That's very astute. I actually think the roots of much of the discomfort we feel about AI extend way back to the karaoke machine because it was the first device in any sphere that let a rank amateur feel like they were a pro. It basically democratized talent. And that's exactly what AI does. But no, you're absolutely right. It's like, in a way, the origins of AI, I'm going to now say, began with karaoke, the, the democratization of talent. The karaoke machine is the, is the start of so much that we take for granted today. It's the first user-generated content, which is basically what drives the entire internet now, right? People posting their own content online. The karaoke machine was the first machine that let you make your own content in a kind of a remix with other people's music. I wonder where, I mean, how did people interact with this? Was it was it, was it put in bars or like, you know, you talk about the salary man, so it was in clubs. Like, where did this machine come from? And I'm right in thinking they were coin operated. You'd You're absolutely your- right. So the first karaoke machines, both in Negishi's uh, case and in Inoue's more successful case, were placed in bars, uh, what are known as snack bars in Japan. And these are the sorts of places that you would wind up at the end of the night. And they had coin slots where you would put in a hundred yen coin and it would meter out three minutes of song, which was just enough for about one and a half songs. And this time limit was carefully picked by Inoue because he knew that nobody would stop in the middle of a song <laughs> and would jam a bunch of coins right. in. I always used to do Bohemian Rhapsody because you, <laughs> you, you, yes. you get more for your money, you see. I'm thinking yes. as <laughs> well there's a, <laughs> so there's a funny story about this. So Inoue puts the first machine in a bar in Kobe. And he's just like, "Look, look, just I'll put it in here, we'll split the profits, you know, let's just see how it goes." Hmm. And he sticks it in there and after a, a couple of of days, he gets a call back from the bartender. He's like, "Take this piece of junk out of here. It's broken down." And Inoue's like, "Broken down? Okay, well that's too bad." He goes in And he checks it and he realizes the machine hasn't broken down at all. The coin slot is jammed full of coins. The entire coin box is jammed full of coins. So many people have used it. He didn't build in any system for like when it fills up. Mm. So he realized then that he was onto something. And he started making more of these and putting them in more and more bars all over Kobe, which is why, which is when the the Performing Artist Association started to get a little bit nervous (laughs) about these machines proliferating through their domain. Let's talk about, this is a good moment, I think, to talk about the word karaoke, because it's not karaoke. It's, this is a, still called an eight juke, which I guess yes. eight track and, and jukebox. And I'm kind of imagining, you know, I remember jukeboxes and tables in American diners where you'd put your money in and just listen to music. Yeah, 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 the jukebox. I, I'm, I'm thinking of a similar kind of setup in a bar. In exactly. What, when does it go from that to, the, to this word karaoke, which then took over the world? Well, so karaoke, uh, it's actually pronounced karaoke in Japanese. Kara meaning empty and oke meaning orchestra. 
and it was an industry term. It had been used uh, for many, many years by people in the radio and television industries to refer to a situation where you needed a singer to perform for your show, but you didn't have an orchestra. So you would give them a pre-recorded instrumental track to sing along to. Mm. And that was known in the industry as karaoke, a karaoke track. So when Mr. Negishi first started uh, making his machine in 1967, he told me that he actually went to friends of his who were recording artists and they're like, oh, you want karaoke? You want karaoke tracks? But he didn't name his machine that because the word also kind of sounds similar to a Japanese word, kangoke, which sounds like coffin. And he was worried that people who didn't know what karaoke meant would have this, give it this negative association and they called it the Sparko Box instead. But what's interesting about that, and it goes back to what, how we started this conversation, is that things, words like, or a term like Sparko Box or Eight Duke sounds very American or British or Western generally. It's got that kind of... Yes. And yet it's that, it's that Japanese-ness of the word karaoke yes. that eventually took the world by storm. Suddenly people were craving that uh, Japonism, yes. I suppose. Well, it was great. You know, one of the reasons that karaoke took off as a word and as a concept mm. was because nobody patented it. And so nobody could put a copyright on it. And everybody, every even rivals could point to this and say, this is karaoke. So mm. it became the dominant term by virtue of it being owned by nobody, by virtue mm. of it being this very old term that had been repurposed. And the fact that nobody had thought to patent the karaoke machine because they thought it was just too obvious of a combination of, of, of gadgets to, to work. Now, of course, we know that putting existing objects together in a new configuration is absolutely patent worthy. <laughs> That's how it works. <laughs> That's how well, it works. <laughs> and I suppose, okay, well, let's, let's move on to that because the eight Duke isn't what became the kind of the, the, the sort of karaoke machines. It was companies like JVC, I think. Yes. Was it JVC or Sony? JVC and many other companies, when they started their own Which is a Japanese men. company, by the way. Yeah. Yes, Japan, Japan Victor, Victor Corporation. Corporation, yeah. One, one more cultural reference about JVC, thinking about the 1980s and, and the sudden emergence of Japanese culture in the 80s. Back to the Future, Michael J. Fox has a JVC camcorder and it's very oh, clearly yeah. a J and there was a massive craze for that JVC camcorder sure. when he's filming Doc Brown in the car sure, 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 sure. poll. Sorry, he's, carry on. No, no, I well actually, you know, Marty is actually fired by a Japanese boss and back to the of future three. You're fired on the fax yes, machine. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. Uh, okay, okay, okay. Anyway, that's in parenthesis. Okay, carry on. So re remember what I said earlier, like carry like people would businessmen, salarymen would gather at night and go on business trips and they needed to sing and the karaoke machine emerged to kind of service this market. Well, people in the businessmen and the consumer electronics industry were going out, you know, for business trips too. undoubtedly they encountered the karaoke machine in the wild. And thought, well, hey, this is something we might make ourselves. And especially when they realized it wasn't patented, that became the, as we say in paleontology, the Cambrian explosion of nice. like the evolution of species. And that's Love where it. you get all of these JVC and, and all of these different companies making their own Yamaha, all of them making their own competing karaoke machines. And it spread like wildfire through the cities of Japan. But it would take a little bit longer to get into the West. Well, how much longer? Like, because th I mean, things that exploded in Japan moved over to Britain and America and Europe pretty pretty swiftly. Well, this might surprise you, but the first 
uh, uh, karaoke. The first album turned into karaoke in its enti- entirety was uh, uh, Born in the USA. So that's really we're already in the 80s by the time these Western yeah. songs start getting karaoke ties. So the, the original in its original incarnation and throughout the 1970s, karaoke was seen as a salary man's hobby. It was seen as something that middle aged men did. And the software, meaning the songs that were made for it, reflected their tastes. It was like pre-war, you know, marches and like elegies and like, you know, love songs and kind of syrupy saccharine sort of stuff that no young person in their right mind would ever want to be associated with. And in fact, Mm. up until the 90s in Japan, if you were working at a company and your boss said he wanted to go sing karaoke, you ran in terror because it meant an <laughs> evening of you listening to your boss crooning these moldy old standards. Well, it still has that love-hate karaoke. Yes. I mean, I'm a massive karaoke. Well, I, I'll, I'll come on to my own preferences in a moment. But when, okay, when do we go from those sort of pre-war Japanese ballads through to Bruce Springsteen and, and so Frank Sinatra and crooning? Okay. It's in the 80s when karaoke companies start realizing that, hey, maybe young people like to sing, too. And this also mirrors a shift in the technology. You know, uh, in the beginning, it was all eight track tapes and then it became cassettes. But by the 80s, you had like laser discs and then later you have CDs. And one thing I really want to point out here that's interesting is most of the advances in storage media in Japan were driven entirely by the needs of the karaoke ecosystem. So the needs, because it was very difficult to, you know, put a lot of songs onto a tape. So there was a demand for kind of storage media that could hold more than five or six or 12 songs. The eight track was actually one of the first ways of doing that because it would, you could put multiple tracks on the the different tracks of the tape. Mm. But the laser disc was a real breakthrough because that one also had visuals along with the So beyond, so not just CDs, but actually the old big... Album Big silver lasers. platters. They were but, good. Yeah. yeah, they're great. They look like space records. I love yeah, those things. They're amazing. Oh, so, so that was that was driven by karaoke. Yes, so you, yes. You, so you could have the lyrics on the screen as well. So Cheesy videos. Much, so, so much of Japanese technology was driven by karaoke. You know, the Nintendo Entertainment System. We all mm-hmm. love the Nintendo Entertainment System. Mm-hmm. When it came out in Japan in 1982, the controller actually had a microphone built into it. Because they assumed that it would be used to sing on karaoke cartridges. And there actually was yeah. karaoke cartridges made for the original Nintendo Entertainment System. Mm. And this didn't even end there. The Sony PlayStation, we think of it as so high tech. The only way that Sony's engineers were able to get the Sony PlayStation greenlit by their bosses mm. is to say, well, it has a CD player. People are going to be using it to sing karaoke. And the bosses mm. are like, hmm, very interesting. And that's why we got the PlayStation, because of karaoke. Talk us through the the uh, emergence of karaoke in America, Britain. Like when, so you mentioned Bruce Springsteen. Sure. A, a whole new generation of young people wanting to sing like and 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 the, and the sort of choices of song as well. What did we want to sing? I I mentioned Frank Sinatra. I always sing. I always sing Elvis. Karaoke first came into the West via Japanese restaurants and Japanese bars, of which there were quite a few in major cities like Los Angeles and New York and you know Chicago. These kind of epicenters of business. So it sort of mirrored what was going on. But as Westerners, uh, uh, and I'm sure London as well too. Mm-hmm. But as Westerners realized 
you know, what this, <clears throat> this, this strange new technology from Japan was, they realized they wanted to sing their own songs. And so they started to produce their own content for it. They started to make their own karaoke bars, their own karaoke booths. There were like, you know, in, in the, in the shopping mall, when I was growing up, they'd have this kind of record your own sing along, you know, <laughs> company that was vending tapes. So it slowly, slowly started to spread basically from Japanese restaurants into bars you know, yeah. when I was going to college in the early 90s, it was all the rage to scream out, you know, the sex pistols in the bar, you know, yes. <laughs> after a couple or <laughs> yes. dozen beers. That was how it spread in the West. It's interesting because, OK, there's a near where I live here, there's a karaoke bar called Lucky Voice. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a kind of, you know, it's a, a, a chain. And the whole idea is that you go in with your friends into a little private room and you do your thing. Now, for me... Like the joy of karaoke. I used to live in Los Angeles, all right? And there was a karaoke bar, which I think is closed down now. It's called it was called Dimples. And it was in Burbank. And we yes. used to go there. It was a really very cheesy, famous. Do you know Dimples? Have you it heard was of this? one of the it's one of the okay. seminal karaoke bars in, in LA. Okay. I kept I kept Dimples alive, I would go in there so much. That was like <laughs> it became like we would go to there was all the kind of cool bars in LA. You know, the and that was the uncool bar. That and it was, was so uncool, but yes. we made it cool. So, and this was at the time when Swingers, the movie came out. So this yes. is like mid mid nineties. Yes. So we were all into that. But the joy of Dimples would be it was a big American bar, and they had a stage, so you wouldn't just be singing to your mates; you'd be singing to everyone in the bar. Right. And and the thing is, you'd get up on stage and you'd do your song, and they would give you a tape, a recording of your song. I have a whole stack of Dimples oh, tapes. You better be playing singing. those. Oh, I oh I got them here of me doing of me doing Elvis covers, ha. and it was a, so, it was a this is a big sorry listeners this is a big part of my life. So I'm sorry for <laughs> waxing and eulogizing, but this is important. To me. Sorry. So karaoke evolved in 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 parallel but different directions in Japan and and the United States and Europe. In mm. Japan, it started out in bars. But very quickly over the course of the 80s emerged as more of a solo or small group pursuit with the development of what were called karaoke capsules, which are basically rooms where each group would get its own room and sing their own songs. So it very quickly in Japan ceased to be a group phenomenon. But as you know very well uh, from your experience at Dimples, and I do myself from my experiences at college and many karaoke bars in the States, it remained a public spectacle in the West. Yes, to yes, the, it should be a public spectacle. And that's, you know, it's almost like gladiatorial, right? You go up and yeah. there's one of two, there's one, of, you exactly. have one of two missions. You're either yes. going to peacock your skills or you're going to yep. try to crack the whole room up. That's it. Exactly. There's nothing that's in between. It. And it's that's like thumbs genius. up, thumbs down. Yeah, and you'd get the you'd get the adrenaline. You don't get that if you're just yes. doing it to like three guys and three friends in a booth. Well, you're supposed to be going with a party, you know, your party, and that way you can sing your own songs and not have to worry about what the other but, groups are singing. But, but I want to do it to total strangers yes, for the fear. Yes. For, for the fear. <laughs> Westerners are so aggressive. I don't know. It's just <laughs> it's uh, that whole competitive aspect is quickly yeah. died out in Japan. Anyway, what if, listen, I loved, it's been so lovely talking to you, Matt. Thank you very much for coming. And just your whole book is full of this thesis about, about, about it's not just about the inventions themselves, but there is something bigger at play here about, about Japanese culture, isn't it? Oh, well, I honestly, honestly yeah. believe you can't understand the world as, that we live in today without understanding uh, the things that happened in Japan over the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. In fact, that's why the mm. subtitle of the book was recently changed to Pure Invention, How Japan Made the Modern World 
That's the revised edition of it. And uh, I really do believe that. And the more the more I you know peel the the layers off this onion, the more you start to see the parallels and the and the connections. Um, I think I'm going to uh, treat our listeners now, I should say. I'm going to dig out one of my Dimples tapes <laughs> from yesteryear. Crikey, I don't even have a tape machine. This anymore. is history. How the, how the hell? On it, this is like, this is early 90s. I had a, you know, for me, I was always, for me, karaoke was all about Elvis, partly because the pitch of Elvis's voice right. suited my voice. And then my my favorite karaoke moment ever, is not really a karaoke moment, but it's in the David Lynch film, Wild at Heart, when Nicolas Cage... And Laura, and Laura Dern, they get, walk through the club and there's a band on stage. Yes. And he gets up and, and sings, To read me like a fool. <laughs> love me by Elvis. Not love me tender, but love me by Elvis. I always, because yes. I always wanted to be Nicolas Cage in my snakeskin jacket. You need so your snakeskin jacket, yes. That was my El, That was my dimples. I would come in and I would do that. So, Did you ever listener. run into Nicolas Cage at dimples? It seems like no. the kind of place he'd be. It's, to, it's total Nicolas Cage thing. Hey, Matt, listen, will you come back on and talk about other Japanese inventions we can do the walkman yes we can do, let's crikey we can do we can do pac-man we can do hello kitty oh god see i, I love pac-man in, in the uk we had a pac-man rip-off called Munchman, <laughs> and, our, and, our, <laughs> and, and i had i don't know why i got it for christmas and i was really gutted because i i, I said i want a pac-man you know right right mini right console right. You, can, you can buy and I opened my present at age 10, and it was beautiful. It was a yellow, beautifully molded, very Japanese thing, but it was called Munch Man because I guess they didn't have the right. It's like those crushing childhood moments that crushing, teach you crushing. never trust adults. Exactly. And I never got the BMX from ET. Oh, no. I never got it. Matt, pleasure. We'll see you soon. See you next time. Thank you. That's it. Hope you enjoyed that episode. As I mentioned in the introduction, we're going to be doing a whole load of episodes about Japanese inventions, about how Japanese technology conquered the world. There's some great, great stories. So we'll be getting Matt on again because um, <laughs> there's just too much. There's too much good stuff in Matt's book not to bring him on again. There's so many good Japanese inventions that really changed the course of history, particularly in the second half of the 20th century so look out for those if you enjoyed this episode go and listen to other episodes we've got loads of them and don't forget to tell all your friends and family too don't forget to like subscribe sing to the world about how much you enjoyed it uh, and if you did enjoy it and you've got an episode that you'd like us to cover a story idea perhaps or something that you're interested in that you'd like us to do get in touch patent it at historyhit.com or give me a poke on social media uh, and I will endeavour to get it to the relevant people. Apologies if you have done. I'm terrible at looking at social media sometimes. I, I, I forget. So I go and look at my instant messages and go, oh my God, lots of people have been in touch with me. So apologies if you, if you, if you have got in touch and I haven't uh, done that already. I will see you next time. Thanks very much for your company. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive, 
and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch. Download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code patented at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.